Thank you, Megan. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you that even as far back as Exodus and and even much further back, you have revealed to us that your character is the same. You're a God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but you also keep justice and righteousness. You hold these perfectly together as we sing often on Sunday mornings, love and justice shall agree. God, help us to love who you have revealed yourself to be. Help us to take you on your terms. God, I pray for us as we receive your word today that we would truly receive it, that we would obey it. God, that we would approach in joyful humility, understanding that um, you are constantly working to bring us into greater degrees of Christ-likeness. And so, Father, by your grace, for your glory, allow us to love you more, allow us to love others more. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. You guys look good today. Good morning. You guys look good today. Um, So I'm Kyle Fisher. I'm here on staff at White Rock Fellowship as an associate pastor. Um, So my wife, Michelle, and I raised, uh, we welcomed our son into the world in January of 2022. Now, when I was writing the sermon, um, I said that we welcomed our son into the world in 2021. And that's a, that's a pretty good sign of, like, what happens to your mind after you have a newborn. You just kind of lose all, time, all sense of time and space. Noah, if you know him, is a really easy baby. He may be the easiest baby in all of history. As long as he's fed and he's slept, he is a happy child. Even so, um, even so, we were welcomed, Michelle and I, into the world with that, that welcome basket that all parents receive, which is sleepless nights and marital conflict. So it's like a ton of fun. Uh, we can look back on it like with fondness because it was a time of uh, growth for us, both in our relationships with the Lord as well as with each other. But in the middle of it, it's tough, right? So Noah's an easy baby, but you're still waking up in the middle of the night. You're tired. Your mind feels like it's in a fog. You feel like, you know, your, your patience level is running at like 50% efficiency at max, hence the marital conflict, right? Um, and so I remember at one point, even though, Noah had been sleeping pretty well uh, about five or six months in. We were waking up two or three times a night. So, I mean, we'll take that as compared to the first three or four weeks of life. Michelle, about five or six months in, starts talking to me about this thing called sleep training. And if um, it's exactly what it sounds like if you're unfamiliar. It's where you, you train your child to sleep without you being in the room. Um, and so you know, the way it goes is apparently you're supposed to wait five. You put them in the room by themselves um, Wait five minutes, and if they keep crying, you go back in, you rub their little tummy, tell them that you love them. Then you wait 10 minutes, and if they continue to cry, you rub their little tummy. And then after 15 minutes, obviously I'm saying something that's probably very controversial to a bunch of different parenting styles, but you know, it's me, so here we are. Um, So after 15 minutes, you're supposed to keep doing that until they fall asleep, Um, hence the sleep training. So Michelle's telling me this, and if you know me, I cannot conceal my emotions on my face, and the only thing I can think and convey with my face is, this sounds so terrible. I don't want to do this. What this means is we're going to regress, and apparently we're just never going to sleep again, and then we die, and, and that's it. Like, that's basically it. Um, I'm not the dramatic one in our family, in case you couldn't tell. Um, so the kicker, though, the best part about it was she was like, well, you know, like, the other thing you're supposed to do is put them to bed three hours earlier. And I'm like, that's insane. There's no way this works. I'm going to wake up at 2 a.m. because it's my night. I'm going to wake up at 2 a.m. And then once again, we're not going to sleep. And then we die. 
And that's it. Um, so the night comes, she finally convinces me. She may have had to do a little convincing herself, but she mainly had to convince the cynic and the skeptic in the family. So she puts Noah down. He starts crying after five minutes. She goes in um, because she's a great mom. She rubs his little tummy and does all the great mom things that she does. And he continues to cry. And I'm, I'm sitting there praying to God, if ever, if ever you loved me, you're going to help this kid go to sleep. He doesn't stop. After 10 minutes, she goes back in and does the same thing. And I'm praying to God, how long, O oh Lord? How long? And then shortly thereafter, he falls asleep. And so we had so much free time. We could like play a board game or like, the options were endless, really. Like, the entire world opened up before us, right? But we still had to go to sleep and we still had to see if he would sleep through the night, right? And apparently there's this great, um, apparently he's supposed to sleep longer by putting him down earlier. So I go to sleep. It's my night. The bill's coming due. And I'm like, this is going to be miserable. Sure enough, he wakes up. I wake up and I roll over and I pick up my phone and it says 6 a.m. And I think to myself, the Lord inclined to me. He heard my cry and he made my rest secure. Like, this is a great evening. Like, um, I was actually happy to get up with the kid that morning. Um, Whenever that happened, I felt like a brand new person. I felt renewed. Now, if you've been following with us in Romans, you'll understand there's a reason why I said the word renewed, right? There's this idea of the renewed mind in many ways undergirds, and it's, it's sort of the mode of operation for life after Romans 1 through 11. So Romans is, dev- is, is divided into two sections. Romans 1 through 11 is orthodoxy, right? This is right belief about God that leads into right glorification of God. Romans 12 to the end, orthopraxy. This is right living in light of gospel. And so the renewed mind, in many ways, is the means by which we live out this orthopractic life. It's the means by which we, we, we are transformed into greater degrees of Christ's likeness. And so the question becomes, renewed mind is this sort of general term. What does that mean in the specific? What does it mean? for us to live with a renewed mind. And our passage today, Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, right? Give you a little time to go there. Romans chapter 12, 17 through 21, deals with the issue of the renewed mind, but specifically how it relates to our enemies. So the question becomes, how does the renewed mind interact with its enemies? How does the gospel-centered mind, how does the mind from Romans 1 through 11, we're saved by grace through faith, how does that interact with those who have wronged us? How does it interact with our enemies? Now, what I think Romans, what I think God through Romans is going to show us today, he's going to give us an overview, sort of like a catchphrase, a sentence that we can apply. He's going to show us the specifics of that overview, and he's going to give us the rationale. So overview, specifics, rationale, Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. How do we relate to our enemies? It says this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So overview, specifics, rationale. Well, what's the overview? Well, it starts in verse 21, right? Verse 21, in many ways, succinctly states into one sentence what this entire passage is about. And verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. So you've got a negative thing. You have something that you're called to reject, being overcome by evil. You have a positive thing that you're called to pursue. Instead, overcome evil with good. And this, in many ways, fits the pattern of the theme of Romans 12 to the end. The theme is found in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. So we're going to back up and get a little bit of a running start. In light of the gospel in Romans 1 through 11, Paul makes an appeal to the believers in Rome, and he says, Brothers, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So in light of God's mercy as seen in his gospel, therefore, this is the logical conclusion, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That phrase, spiritual worship, could easily be translated rational service. So what we're called to do in light of the gospel is give our bodies over to God as living sacrifices, denying ourselves, offering what is only rational in light of what God has done through his gospel. Okay, well the question becomes, what does it look like to give your body as a living sacrifice? And verse 2 lays that out in, the, in these broad terms. Number 1, it says, do not be conformed to this world. Right? The idea of being conformed is fitting into a mold. Right? So if you like to, to bake cornbread, if that's like your niche hobby, right? uh, if you have that little mold that makes the cornbread look like actual corn bread which is incredible, of course. Um, That's the idea present. Do not allow the world to conform you into a specific image that it wants to conform you into. Okay, so that's the negative thing. Don't be conformed to this world, but positively pursue something else. Be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. And so that's where we get this idea of the renewed mind playing such a pivotal role in Christian living from Romans 12 and onward, in light of what the gospel has done, there's a renewed way of thinking that lets the gospel set as its primary lens instead of the way that the world conceives of whatever it is. In today's passage, specifically, how we treat our enemies. So if we're going to summarize an overview of how the renewed mind interacts with its enemies, it would be something like this. The renewed mind overcomes evil with good. The renewed mind overcomes evil with good. There's a negative here. Don't, become, don't let evil overcome you. Don't be overcome by evil. And positively, in the same pattern as Romans 12, 2, don't be transformed, be conformed. Don't be overcome by evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. So what does that mean? What does it mean that we should overcome evil with good? What are the specifics of that? Verses 17 and 19 push us towards a better understanding, and they push us towards something that we're called not to do. They they push us towards something that we're called to reject. Verse 17 says, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 19, if you'll skip down to it, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now, there's more to those verses, and we'll get to them in just a second. But whenever we talk about overcoming evil with good, one of the things that we're called to do is reject a certain way of living, and reject a way of living that the world would say actually is appropriate to do in light of your enemies, right? Overcoming evil with good necessitates that we set aside personal revenge. Overcoming evil with good necessitates that we set aside personal revenge. Well, where do we get that? Well, we get that from verse 17. Don't repay evil for evil. You could literally translate that. Don't repay evil in place of evil. So someone has wronged you and you're going to set evil as a sort of payback towards them. And this is confirmed by verse 19. Never avenge yourselves, but instead leave, leave place for the wrath of God. Leave it to the wrath of God. So when we talk about overcoming evil with good, one of the things that 
that we're called to do specifically is to take this idea of vengeance. And what is vengeance? Well, vengeance is someone has wronged you and you want to pay them back. And if we would live with a renewed mind in overcoming evil with good, one of the things that we are called to do, one of the things that we're called to do is to set aside this personal revenge. Remember, the renewed mind sees the way of, of living, the see, sees our new way of living as something that is gospel-centered and not centered around the values of the world. Think about whenever Christ saved us. He saved us when? While we were still sinners. In Ephesians chapter 2, God made us alive when? While we were children of wrath, Christ made us alive. God did that because of his love for us. And so if we would live with a renewed mind, one of the things that we must do is take this idea of getting even with someone, and we have to set that aside. We have to put it off. We have to let it go. Because that does not reflect the true gospel. The world says, when someone wrongs you, get even. If they speak ill of you, speak evil right back of them. If they talk about you behind their back, do the same. Whatever it is, it's a law of returns. And a law of returns is not gospel. Gospel is grace. It is mercy. Amen. Set aside personal revenge. Now, the reality is some of you, and, and I know it because I think myself, these same thoughts, are thinking, yeah, but there's been some real bad done to me. What I love about the Bible is it is not delusional. Look at the words that are used in this passage. Evil. Good. Enemy. Right? The Bible does not call us to live in a realm of delusion, acting like wrongs done are not wrongs done. And for a lot of us, when we come to these issues, we, we start to, to, we allow this lie to creep in that says, oh yeah, the wrongs that are done, they're not, this is saying that those wrongs are not actually wrong. No! What it's saying is, if someone has done evil to you, you are called not to repay that evil back to them. And it's precisely because evil and wrong has been done to you that makes this powerful. C.S. Lewis, perhaps the 13th apostle, right? Everyone loves C.S. Lewis. At White Rockets, Eugene Peterson. It's a little mini church culture moment right there. Um, C.S. Lewis has maybe one of the best essays on forgiveness. It's like eight pages. It would be worth a read. You can find it online. It's, it's an essay entitled On Forgiveness. And usually anytime something starts in its title with the word on, that's, that's a rough read. It's real boring. This is a really great read. And the reason why forgiveness is important is because forgiveness stands at the core of setting aside personal revenge. If you're willing to forgive someone, you will not go after them, right? But it's also perhaps the end of not seeking revenge. You want to get to a point where you're releasing the wrongs done against you. And what Lewis writes is, we oftentimes, we, we struggle with forgiveness because we think that forgiveness is saying, oh, that which is done to me is excusable, right? But if it's excusable then there's no need to forgive. Forgiveness is precisely letting go of something that was done wrong to you, that has no excuse, and yet saying, I'm not going to hold it against you. And this is what he says. This is what he writes. He says, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, right? the sin that is left over without any excuse after all allowances all allowances have been made in seeing it in all of its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. When we set aside personal revenge, we're not saying that wrongs haven't been committed. We're saying, I'm not going to repay you in kind. 
I think Paul here has to be reflecting in the Sermon on the Mount, which was echoed even in last week's passage. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We all know Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What Paul is doing is he's reflecting on that and he's saying, whenever we would interact with our enemies, the gospel-centered mind, the renewed mind, there is no place for a law of returns. It's mercy for our enemies and grace. But like so many things with the gospel, it's not just that we're called to abstain from something. It's that we're to, to press into virtue. We're called to indulge in virtue. We're called to, to have this, this new way of living. When it comes to presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, we're called to be transformed with this new mindset of the gospel. Well, what is the good thing that we're called to do? Verses 18, sorry, 17, 18, and 20. Repay no one evil for evil, but instead give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now this word honorable could just as easily be translated as good. And that would fit in well with the theme of this passage. Evil, good, not repaying evil, but instead overcoming evil with good. And if you'll notice, there's a contrast here. There's a reactive way of living that says, when someone wrongs me, I will react in kind with wrong towards them. But if you'll notice, the gospel-centered mind moves away from this sort of reactive way of living into a proactive way of living because it says instead, give thought, think through, to do what is good in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, once again, I love that the Bible is not delusional. There is a category of person that exists where you can, you, can, you can think about how to do good for them and learn, notice this clause, so far as it depends on you, right? There's a realism here, right? There are some people who they are just committed to doing, they're committed to being your enemies, all right? They, they do not want to be reconciled. They don't want to live at peace with you. And Paul's saying, okay, so far as it depends on you, you're called to give thought to do good before all and to exhaust all of those means that you can. And if someone doesn't, if someone doesn't accept that, that's on them. Now, here's the hard part about that. I think the way that the flesh operates in us is we can see that clause as far as it depends on you, and we can very easily or, or far too quickly say, I have exhausted all of these means before we actually pursue reconciliation or pursue the good. If we're not careful, we can jump quickly to, well, I've gone as far as it depends on me, and I know this for my own life, and maybe I'm just projecting, but I think this is true of a lot of us, we actually haven't done as far as it depends on us. See, if we're, if we're looking at what we're called to do, if we're looking at what we're called to do, well, we're called to set aside personal revenge, but the positive thing that we're called to pursue, it, it looks like something like this. Overcoming evil with good necessitates that we act concretely for the good of our enemies. Overcoming evil with good necessitates that we act concretely for the good of our enemies. Where do we get the word concretely from? Verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to eat. Those are concrete actions. Those who are our enemies, truly our enemies, we're called to give thought to do good before all people. We're called to exhaust every means of doing good as, as far as it depends on us. And what that looks like is concrete action on behalf of our enemies. Overcoming evil with good necessitates that we act concretely for the good of our enemies. This runs completely contrary to the world. The world is cancel culture. 
And beyond that, if we're honest with ourselves, the reality is it's really easy. It's easy for me to, to hear these things and to say, oh yeah, I agree with that. We should overcome evil with good. But the money's made in the specifics. And as long as this, this notion of overcoming evil with good is out in the abstract and it never impacts our day-to-day lives, the question becomes, per James and Paul elsewhere, do we really believe it? Words are easy. The reality is that in this world, and I believe that there's a place for caveating, and I believe there's a place for nuance, so what I'm about to say, there are conversations to be had one-on-one. But if our first response when we hear this is to think through, well, how can I caveat this thing away? How can I talk about maybe the boundaries that I need to build? Or the mental health aspect? I'm not saying those things aren't real, but if we build our boundaries so high that we never actually pursue the good of our enemies, have we reduced this to effectively nothingness? I say this not because I'm good at it, right? I'm quite bad at this. If you know me, you know that there's quite a bit of irony that I had this passage. But the truth of the gospel is not found in my ability to carry it out. It's found in the gospel message itself. When did Christ die for us? While we were sinners. If he acted for the good of us when we were still sinners, and him being perfectly righteous, how can we do anything but act concretely for the good of our enemies? So what does this look like? What are the specifics here? Well, at the very, at the very base level, as Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. Maybe the first step is just you have to get to a place where you are going to God in prayer and asking for the good of your enemies. Now, there, good doesn't mean you just say, oh, enable them to do whatever it is that's terrible over and over again. But maybe you start simply by praying because in prayer, our hearts, our hearts soften towards our enemies and they become more aligned with God's will. But in this passage, lest we be too quick just to say, well, I prayed and that's it. It does call us to concrete action. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Overcoming evil with good necessitates that we act concretely for the good of our enemies. So what would it look like for us to jump first to say, how can I act concretely for the good of, our en- of my enemies? Yes, we pray, but perhaps you quite literally, it'd be very biblical, you buy him a meal. Or perhaps there's someone at work who has tried to throw a wrench in your career. Maybe you offered to help them on a project. There are are a bunch of different ways in which you can go about doing this. And it's all incredibly difficult. But if truly we have a renewed mind as a result of what has happened in Romans 1 through 11, we're saved, if truly we're saved by grace, if truly Christ died for us while we were sinners, what's the alternative in light of that? What's the rational response? So the rationale, why do this? Uh, For people who are high on the justice scale of things, this verse will provide much comfort to you. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Why can we act for the good of our enemies? Well, one of the reasons is that God, in his final justice, will make sure that everything 
is settled. There will come a point in time when all outstanding accounts are brought to light and God in his complete and perfect justice, remember, the gospel reveals a number of things. It it reveals God's power to save, but it also reveals that there is not a point in time ever when God lacks righteousness. He always does what is right. And so at the end of all things, we can act for the good of our enemies because we know that his final justice is sufficient. For some of you, you've gone through something that's really unspeakable. And, and time and again, you have watched this person or this group of people just get away unscathed. And in all these institutions that should have taken care of it, right, there are people that we know who have done unspeakably horrible things. They never get charged. They never get arrested. Right? They, never get, they, they somehow escape all of the means of justice that we have. God's going to take care of it. The Lord will repay. We don't have to. And there's no amount of justice that we could mete out or so-called justice that we could mete out that will ever compare to his perfect justice. There's another reason. Look at verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Heaping burning coals on someone's head, that's a, that's a practice that we're common with. Like, we're, we're very familiar with that, right? Um, so the best explanation that I've heard of this verse is this, this, this idea of heaping burning coals is like a symbol of shame or like conviction. And that by doing good, one of the things that happens is you're not seeking, you're not seeking this as a form of vengeance. By acting for good, though, what happens is that the person who has wronged you, I think they look at the good that you've done in light of the evil that you've done to them, and they become convicted that there's something very spiritual happening here. There's something very deep happening. And what is conviction if not the first step? What, what is it if it was not the first step in our own redemption? That when we are convicted by the wrongs that we've done, we saw Christ's sacrifice and the good that he did for us, and we wanted to turn and believe in his gospel. When we act for the good of others... God in his sovereign grace has always ordained that people are the means of carrying that out. And when we act for the good of our enemies, that is a powerful testament to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for us when we were still sinners. See, the rationale behind overcoming evil with good is simple. Overcoming evil with good trusts in God's final justice. Overcoming evil with good trusts in God's final justice. But overcoming evil with good also trusts that God can redeem our enemies. Overcoming evil with good also trusts that God can still redeem our enemies. And so when we act concretely for the good of our enemies, we are entrusting ourselves to God's gospel. To the, to the good news of the gospel that those who are not yet believers might believe. And those who are believers, as it says in Matthew, you might gain your brother back. The reality is that this is, um, I think the rationale behind this is pretty simple. I don't, I don't think the reasons are like that convoluted. Simplicity, though, does not mean easy. It's like difficult. This is like perhaps one of the most, if not the most difficult things that we can do as believers. So I was, I was searching for 
something that would illustrate this concept of people who are enemies becoming friends. And there's a story of a guy named Tommy Pigage or Pagage or Pigage, whatever you, I don't know how you pronounce his name. Tommy struggled with alcohol. He drank and his blood alcohol was like three times the legal limit. He got behind the wheel, right? You know how the story plays out. Christmas Eve, he gets behind the wheel and he kills a young man um, who is the son of a family named the Morris family. And so you can actually read about this in the LA Times. It was published in 1985. He kills his son. He gets arrested. The grand jury decides to drop the charges down from homicide to manslaughter. Naturally, the family, as I would have been, was furious at that. He pleads not guilty. 22 months pass. It's just dragging along. He ends up pleading guilty at the end of that, and he gets a grand total of five years on parole. And this family is furious. And so what the mom was doing is she was following him around to make sure that he was keeping his parole. She's going to make sure that he gets his. And over time, the judge had ordered that he would, that he go and share his story and acknowledge what he did. She began to listen and her heart began to soften. She forgives him. Her husband eventually forgives him, baptizes him. And, and somehow, by God's grace, they end up being like a mini family. They share meals with him twice a week. They, they go to church with him. God is still a God who can redeem our enemies. And part of what happens whenever we, we act concretely for the good of our enemies is we're saying, God, I do trust that the way this relationship is is not the way it may always be. Those who put their trust in the Lord, those who put their hope in the Lord, shall not be put to shame. This is, this is hard. It's difficult. But it reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew Sermon on the Mount, verses 46 through 48, where he says, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even the tax collectors do the same, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The call to live a renewed mind, one of its, one of its aims is that we may be able to discern what is the good and pleasing, acceptable will of God. What is the perfect will of God? And that means that we're called not to be conformed, but to be transformed. The world wants to conform us into a pattern of bitterness and anger and unreconciliation and unforgiveness. But if the gospel is our lens, if we truly have a renewed mind, what else can we do but be transformed by this message so that we act concretely for the good of our enemies. There's no, other ration, there's no other logical outworking of the gospel. If we say we believe in Jesus' reconciling work on behalf of us and then would deny that to our enemies, it's, it's not rational. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fall in line with that worldview. It's hard. It's difficult. I'm not good at it. Once again, the truth is not in me, it's the truth is in the gospel. And so the question is, how can we go about acting concretely for the good of our enemies this week? Maybe those enemies at work, maybe the enemies in the neighborhood, any enemies within your family. We all have enemies. What the gospel says is Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Perhaps we ought to act for the good of our enemies as well. It's really tough. But by God's grace, 
And for the sake of his son, let us overcome evil with good. Let's pray. God, I confess once again that I'm really bad at this. And there's a certain level of hypocrisy for anyone who preaches about this, because we all have enemies. But there's a certain level of hypocrisy in, in calling others to act concretely for the good of their enemies. So, Father, do that in my life. But I do pray for all of us here that if we would truly be people of the gospel, that we, we would, in fact, be people of the gospel who love reconciliation, who love forgiveness, who pursue those things, who set aside the things of the world and say, that's, that's part of my old life. I walk in the newness of life. God, I pray that for the people here, who have experienced some truly terrible things, I I pray that you would provide comfort to them and remind them that you have seen it. Evil will be answered for someday. But Father, in the meantime, I pray also for those who have been deeply wronged that you would empower them with a grace that far transcends our understanding to pursue the good of their enemies. And Yes, God, we need wisdom. And yes, God, sometimes we need nuance and caveats. But before we caveat everything away, Father, let our heartbeat be that of the gospel. And it's your name that we pray.